this place of worship today. And God, we pray that through your supernatural power, your supernatural intervention in our lives, you will enable us today to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that you will be glorified, your people blessed and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. I am so delighted to see each of you this morning, this early. This is great. Amen. And I look out and I see people who've driven from North Lakeland and from Winter Haven and, and even locally. And it's just outstanding. I mean, last night I could, I could hardly sleep just in anticipation of being with you this morning. And here you are turned out with us. So I'm just so excited about this. Just to um, read one verse from where Pastor Joe read in Mark chapter 14, verse 72. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. I want to continue on in this series of sermons today entitled Journeying to the Cross. Journeying to the Cross. In today's scripture lesson, we find Jesus moving a little bit closer to Calvary's cross, a little bit closer to the place where he will shed his innocent blood, a little bit closer to the place where he will suffer and bleed and die to pay our sin debt. He has agonized his way through the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? He goes into the garden and he asks his disciples to watch and pray and they fall asleep. And so he, he, he agonized there in the Garden of Gethsemane where he unapologetically and unashamedly said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, where he made no apologies to, for submitting his will to the will of God. From the garden, he endured the betrayal of one who had been closely associated with him, one who had dipped his hand in the same dish with Jesus. Judas had dipped his hand in the same dish with Jesus, one who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, one who said, in essence, all our relationship has ever been worth is 30 pieces of silver. One who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, one who betrayed him with a kiss, which was the highest symbol between men of, of friendship, respect, and loyalty. To kiss, when men kissed each other in that, in that community, in that culture, it meant that you are my friend. It meant that I have the utmost respect for you. When they kissed each other, that meant that I will be loyal to you to the very end, no matter what. And yet, Judas used this symbolic expression of friendship to betray Jesus. And beginning with verse 15, Jesus is led away to the high priest, and, and, and there with the chief priest and the elders and the scribe, his interrogation process begins. That is, he comes out of the garden, and then he moves before the high priest, the chief priest, the religious leaders, and the scribes, and they begin to intently interrogate him. Now, the whole idea behind this interrogation was to find evidence 
of criminal behavior in the life of Jesus. That's, that, that was the intent behind it, to find evidence uh, of criminal behavior in the life of Jesus in order to crucify him. So it was witness after witness, the Bible tells us, was called to testify against Jesus, but no sufficient evidence was ever found to put him to death. The witnesses came forth, but they could not find anything to nail him to the cross with. False witnesses, the Bible tells us, were even called to testify against him, but to no avail. And the Bible says that their testimonies could not even agree. In other words, they came together and what they said did not even coincide, did not even agree. They could not even agree with their stories. And so finally in verse 61, the high priest asked Jesus this question. He said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Well, if we can't get you one way, we'll get you another. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? To which Jesus replied, I am and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in the heaven. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus prefaces his answer to the high priest with these two words, I am, I am. Now, let your mind go back just momentarily, briefly to the book of Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is having a conversation with God, and Moses asked God in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God says to Moses in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. Let's understand that, Moses. I will certainly be with you. My presence will be with you. My Shekinah glory will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, verse 13, then Moses said to God, indeed, when I... Come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? Are you with me? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, here's those two words again, I am has sent me to you. Now watch carefully. Watch carefully. I am is a name by which God identifies himself. It goes way back to the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh which means he who was, is, and always shall be. Are you working with it? Are you working with it? What that means?
this. He who was, he who is, and he who always will be. So when Jesus identified himself to the high priest as I am, he was emphatically saying to them, I am God. Don't get it twisted. I am God. Jesus, when Jesus continued his statement saying, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven, he identified himself as the long-awaited Savior who would fulfill the prophetic words of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel saw in a vision, saying, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming from the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and languages shall serve him. That was a power-packed statement. And, and the high priest is listening to all, all of this. His dominion, Daniel says, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed, end quote. Jesus here is declaring that he would someday sit in judgment over those who were now sitting in judgment over him. Do you see that? I'm just, I'm just going to work the text a little bit today. Yeah, I want you to work with me a little bit. That's what he said. Jesus is declaring that he is God, he is the Savior, he is the Messiah, and that he would someday sit in judgment over those, over the high priest, the chief priest, and the scribes, and all of the religious leaders who are now sitting in judgment over him. And so with this, and you can understand the logic now that you have the background. With this, the high priest, chief priest, and scribes understood Jesus to pronounce himself as God because only God had the power to judge. And with those words, the chief priest, the high priest, brother, brother was furious. He was furious. He was livid. Had someone thrown a match on him, he would have exploded at the thought of Jesus making such a claim. Jesus making such a claim. Why? Because truth did what truth does when it, confront, when, 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 when it confronts and convicts those who are adamant about remaining evil and bent on continuing in their wicked ways. That's why the high priest was so upset. That's why the chief priest was so upset. That's why the scribes were so upset. That's why the Pharisees were so upset because they were confronted and convicted 
by the truth which Jesus proclaimed to them. And again, truth did what truth does. When it confronts those who are adamant about remaining evil and bent on continuing in their wicked ways. Notice what happens. Poisonous venom, that's words, began to spew and hostile reaction, that's that physical violence, uh, which have laid dormant under the cloak of self-righteous talk, sacred practices, and religious legalism begins to surface. That's what truth did. Let, let me say that again. Let me say that again. Why? Why? Why were, why were they so upset with Jesus making this claim? Because truth did what truth does. It confronted. And as a result of that confrontation, as a result of that confrontation, poisonous venom, words, began to spew out of their mouths. And hostile reactions, which had laid Dormant, that means they were, they were there all alone. They were dormant. They, they were pressed down, but, but they were there. They had laid dormant under the cloak of self-righteousness, under the cloak of the, of the chief priest, the high priest, Pharisees, all of that self-righteous talk, all of that talk about the law, all of that talk about love, all of that talk about following Jesus, about following God, all of that talk about holiness, it was laying dormant under the cloak of self-righteous talk, under sacred practices. They were going to the temple. They were doing all of the religious stuff. They were going through the motions. It was lying dormant under religious legalism. They knew the law. They talked about what the law said, but when Jesus confronted them with truth, The veil was removed. And the real isness of those gathered began to surface. Are you walking with me? Now, notice verses 63 and 64 of the text. How did, how did, how did, how did this evil, how did this wickedness, how, how, how did this unjustness manifest itself? Well, ver- first... In verses 63 and 64, first they accused Jesus of blasphemy. They said, in other words, that you are a fake. You are a phony. You are a fraud. You are blaspheming. You are claiming to be something, somebody that you are not. You are claiming to be God, claiming to be the Savior, but you're faking it. Second, they began to spit on him. They began to spit on him. Spitting on a person represented the highest form of disrespect, degradation, and demoralization. What they were saying through their actions is, Jesus, we don't care anything about you. You aren't worth anything to us, and we will demonstrate how Worthless, we think you are. 
word. They beat him and demanded that he prophesy, meaning preach to them. Fourth, they struck him with the palms of their hands. Luke 22 and 64 renders the same account stating, and having blindfolded him, a way of humiliating him, they struck him, Luke says, on the face. In, in other words, they slapped him with the palm of their hands. And then they asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? In other words, if you are all of that, we have this blindfold on you. Tell us which one of our hands slapped you. Now, to further emphasize the hypocrisy of this, these, these religious leaders, three things need to be pointed out. First, the Jewish leaders had predetermined Jesus's sentence. That is, they already had their minds made up. That further emphasizes their hypocrisy. They already have made up their mind what they wanted to do with Jesus. Verse 55 states, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against him to put him to death, but they found none. Now, if a person is taken to court and there is not enough evidence to convict, the right thing to do is to let them go. If there's not enough evidence to convict, then the right thing to do is to acquit, to let them go. Such was not the case. They didn't acquit. They didn't let him go because their minds were made up to do what they wanted to do in spite of a lack of evidence against Jesus. Hypocrisy. Second, the religious leaders produced, I'm sorry, the religious leaders uh, produced and tolerated false witnesses against Jesus. Help me somebody. Not only did they tolerate people lying on Jesus, but they went out and handpicked the liars. In other words, they got people together to falsely accuse Jesus, verses 55 through 59, tell us many, not just a few, many, not just one or two, many bore false witness against Jesus. According to the Old Testament law, these false witnesses should have been stoned to death. That's the law said. If you got a false witness, if, if somebody's telling lies, thank God that, you know, we, we're much more gracious than that now, but folk are telling lies. Under the law, they took the liars out and they stoned them according to the law. Yet this was not done even though they were lying before the presence of the high priest, who, by the way, was the one responsible for upholding the law of Moses by the letter. Third, 
Jesus was denied proper defense by the religious leaders. Nobody said, let's set up a defense and hear Jesus' Jesus's side. No court-appointed defense attorney for whatever that would have been worth. Zero. But yet they still didn't do it. This travesty of justice was characterized by a predetermined sentence, a production of false evidence, and the prevention of a proper defense. Now, shift gears a little bit. So it was while all of this drama is going on, while all of this trauma is unfolding in Jesus' life, Peter, the one who said that if everybody else turns away from you, Jesus, if all your other well-wishers, your friends, your comrades, your supporters desert you, I'll be right there. The same Peter is warming himself by the fire in the courtyard. And a slave girl of the high priest looks at Peter and, and identifies him as one who was with Jesus. But in verse 68, Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. Having denied Jesus once, he went out. On the porch and the rooster crowed. Again, in verse 69, the servant girl saw Peter and began to say to those who were standing around, this is one of them. And she fingered, she, she pointed the face, she, she fingered Peter. This is one of them. But Peter denied her accusation again. A little later, some folk, stand, other folks standing by said to Peter, surely you're one of them. You, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. I'm from South Carolina, and over the years, my speech has changed a lot. A lot of that has to do with my intention, uh, attention, intentionality. But in South Carolina, particularly on the coastal part around Edisto and Charleston and Monk's Corner and King Street, they speak what's known as gully, a geeche. And whenever you meet somebody from South Carolina, you can always tell they all got that same kind of dialect, unmistakable. And so that's what she's saying. I, I know your dialect. I know what a, listen, I know when I see a Geechee, when I hear a Geechee, I know a Geechee. You might be telling me you from New York, D Chicago, Detroit, but I know better. You are a Geechee from South Carolina. So now Peter is desperately afraid he's been identified as a Geechee. And obviously fearing what, that's what's happening to Jesus will surely happen to him if he is identified with Jesus. In verse 71, he begins to curse and swear. Cursing and swearing. Saying, I don't know this man who you speak. And at that moment, a second time, the rooster crowed, reminding Peter of these words Jesus has spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, what's interesting about this, Luke, the physician, and we have some folks here in healthcare a ministry that would appreciate that. Luke, the physician, was, he paid close attention to detail. 
And and so Luke 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 adds in his gospel, chapter 22, verses 6 to 1, 6 to 2. And the Lord, watch this now. When, when Peter did that, Luke says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I wish we just get a snapshot of that. Uh, just, just looked at Peter, eyeball to eyeball. Peter did not. Jesus turned and looked at him. Notice what Peter felt. How, how have you felt? I know I felt this when I d- denied somebody or, or, or when I was caught in a wrong action and when I was confronted, my, my eyes wanted to go everywhere. You know, you know, sometimes you, you can tell when, when people have done something, uh, said something, you, you know, you walk up to them with a handshake of love and, and a smile and, and a pat on the back and they can hardly look you in the eye. Yeah, 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 yeah. They looking up and looking down and looking all around. Peter, Peter, Jesus looked at him. Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord and how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter was heartbroken. He went out and wept bitterly. As an indication of his heartbreak, his his genuine repentance, he was hurt over this matter. Now, when we really, truly, I mean, when we seriously take into account Jesus' journey towards the cross, I mean, when we just don't go through the motions, we just don't go through uh, just reading over it, just surface, you know, but when we really dig into it, when we really think about it, when we really leave church and, and think about it, when this word saturates us, when it infiltrates our minds, when it saturates our heart, when it really gets into us, when, when, we, when we really stop to think about this journey, when we really contemplate all that Jesus went through in our minds, three things will inevitably take place. First, we will be motivated to worship. Oh, yeah, when you think about this, you, you, know, you, know, you know, TV ain't going to hold you, you know, on, on, on Sunday morning. Uh, when you really think about this, um, you, we just motivate to worship privately in our private times. Sometimes our car is our sanctuary. Sometimes our bedroom is our sanctuary. When we really, you know, think about this, this, what Jesus went to, we are motivated to worship. When we read about, hear about, and think about Jesus who endured trials and treachery and treason in order to save poor, wretched sinners like you and me, it motivates us to worship. When I come to church, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have to be motivated to worship. I come already inspired, already motivated to worship and to get my praise on. I come ready when I think about the, the, the trials and the treachery and the treason Jesus went through in order to save a poor, wretched, undeserving sinner like me. We, we think about this thing. We should be packing the pews and the parking lots every Lord's day in order to worship him publicly, to come into his house and say by our being and even with our words, Thank 
you, Jesus. You didn't have to do it, but you did. Thank you, Jesus. I was a sinner, a wretch undone. I don't deserve to preach. I don't deserve to sing your praises. I don't even deserve to be here. But I'm here today because God kept me so I wouldn't let go. Bible-based, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching and teaching churches should be full to capacity doing various worship engagements, not only for what Jesus endured on Calvary's cross, but for all the stuff he went through even before he got to the cross. He went to the cross, but even if he didn't, we should be here praising God for what he went through in route. And you know the remarkable thing about it is he could have called 10,000 angels to halt the process. Not only could he call 10,000 angels to halt the process, he could have used sovereign power to hold up the procedure. But not only could he have called 10,000 angels to halt the process and used his sovereign power to hold up the procedure, he could have implemented divine deliverance to hinder the pain. But he didn't. He let it roll on for you and for me. We ought to be motivated to worship him every chance we get. Second, we will be stimulated to witness. When we take what Jesus did seriously, we'd be stimulated to witness. We won't, we won't need a class on witnessing. We'll be stimulated. We don't need external motivation to witness. We'll be internally motivated to witness when we really think about, be soaked up with what Jesus did for us. Simply put, just thinking about the hate, just thinking about the hideousness, just thinking about the harmful atrocities levied against Jesus as he made his way to the cross to pay our sin debt ought to encourage us, infuse us with enthusiasm to run and tell somebody what the Lord has done for me. Talking on Facebook about family is fine and about football is fine and about politics is fine. But when we take into account what Jesus did for us, it ought to motivate us to tell somebody on Facebook, on Instagram, somehow, some way, what the Lord has done for me. It ought, it, ought, it, ought, it ought to stimulate us to, to give our testimony, not based upon what we've heard, but whether what we know. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'll admit that there are a lot of things that I don't know. There, there are a lot of things I, I, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I admit that. But, but this one thing I do know. I know that Jesus was wounded for my transgressions. Yeah. I know that he was bruised for my iniquities. I know that the chastisement for my peace was upon him. And I know that by his stripes, I am healed. And I got to tell somebody. Ain't too educated to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody, anybody, not only those who come to church, but those whom I meet in the marketplace, those who I meet at the gas station, somebody I got to tell 
about Jesus. I mean, if this thing means anything to you, you, you got to tell somebody. People talk about a lot of stuff these days, and folks flex their intellectual wherewithal, whatever their feel may be. But the most important thing we can share with folk is about Jesus. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 and 12, I know whom I believe. Uh, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And thirdly and finally, we will be obligated to work. Yeah, you know, once we, once we really talk about, you know, what Jesus has done and know what Jesus, we, we be obligated to work. And that, that's one of the things, I mean, I, I, I don't boast. I just testify. That's one thing I love about good hope. But people love to work. You know, people will roll up their sleeves and get involved. Whatever you need, let's get it done. People are willing to work. Now, we're obligated to work in the sense that we feel compelled. We feel compelled on behalf of Jesus Christ to do whatever it is, whatever it takes to do what God has called us to do. We are obligated when we know and believe all that Jesus has done for us. That work involves sometimes suffering because it did for Jesus. It involved him suffering and bleeding on the cross to pay a sin that he did not owe. Our challenge is to stay with Jesus and stay with the work. Dark clouds will rise and Strong, but stay with the work. Strong winds will blow, but stay with the work. Disappointments and setbacks will come, but stay with the work. 